But it's just airplanes, so it's not, it's it's, not really no this is This is the best seat now. It's, it's got a runway in the front yard. Anyways, we're going to blow away our whole half-hour advantage here. There's a list. There is. I got to finish this solitaire game. Go ahead. <laughs> so I don't know how to start this story. Okay, <laughs> I don't know how to start this story. Here's the deal. I mean, I'm Just on pick the, up the ball and run. Dude. I'm on the record. I'm on the record as saying that that if I was in an airplane that was on fire, spiraling towards the ground, you could not get me to jump out of it. All right. But now we got this guy who rides a balloon up to twenty eight thousand feet. No, 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 no. One, no, no, no. one, no, no. one hundred twenty. One, excuse me. Correction. I'm, I stand corrected. One hundred and twenty eight thousand twenty. 24 miles. 24 miles, all right, above the ground, all right? And he kind of steps out onto this little ledge and just falls forward. And I don't know, I just, you know, well, you got a hand to the guy. It, it, it took it took a couple to do that. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a couple of big brass ones in there. Yeah, and, uh, and, and there was well, a lot well, of interesting you know, technology behind the whole thing. The but, thing that would scare me about the whole thing, I guess, would really be the, um, the landing at the United, because I've just never done any parachutes. But, you know, the the air is so thin. Of course, you got to have a pressure suit on. The air is so thin, and you get into the you know the the, the 40s or 30s. Uh, there's really no real deal going on here. Yeah, well, that's what they were saying. Is that uh, that was the big danger? One of the big dangers was that when he first when he first jumped, if you will, or fell off this thing, he had to be really careful because there was not enough air pressure. You know, I guess skydivers, David, used to do this, but yeah. I guess skydivers what use their arms and they literally fly, and that's how they stay oriented to the ground and you know kind of do all that right. thing. But but uh, well, when even he fr- in in the time before flying squirrel suits in web jumpsuits, yep. uh, you know, one of the big issues was using your body in a CG format predominantly, but, but partially drag to get in a stable spread and fall you know, face down stably and not tumbling in over in. It's really actually pretty easy below, oh, 25,000 feet. Right. But, and that was the issue here is that this guy had to be careful not to put himself into a tumble from the, from the get-go. Which because, he did. Yeah, and that's right. Did you guys see that video? Well, that, was, it a, was it a tumble or a spin? Uh, well, it was more of a spin. Oh, yeah. I don't know. It looked like a totally out of control, every axis tumble, if you ask me. You couldn't see it real well. It was like it was on one of like the infrared camera or something like that. But you could really make out his arms and legs. And it looked to me like he was tumbling in every which direction, don't you think? I don't know. That's what it looked like to me. I didn't, I looked, didn't see that particular video. So yeah, it was kind of scary. That was, that was to it, me, it, the it most. It looked like he was tumbling around four of the six axes that <laughs> yeah, you could Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and, exactly. And, and that's what, that's uh, the part that scared me the most when I saw him doing that. Well, uh, he was lucky that, in my in my from my perspective, what I understand of the physics of this thing is that the real danger here is is like in a spacecraft in outer space, if it becomes unstable around a number of axes, there's a real danger of it blacking out the people on board from, right, right. from the G forces. Right. Uh, you know, it's not like the guy's going to hit the ground very quick. Uh, you got a lot of time to try to figure it out, but if you enter such a violent uh, uh, event of instability, right, that it blacks you out. Uh, well, you got a whole lot of other problems there too, because if you try to open a canopy with that kind of multi-axis 
instability going on, there's a very real possibility that you won't get an open camp canopy. Right. But apparently there was a uh, some sort of drogue shoot or something that could have been deployed. I, I thought I heard the commentators say that it would have deployed automatically under certain circumstances. And I don't doubt that. I believe that's correct. And but, that was intended again, to get him out of that kind of a tumble. Um, again, if he's going too fast... It may not deploy. It, the The lines may wrap up around his body before he gets out to line stretch and, uh, yeah. and start to fill with a little bit of air. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You've that, to- yeah. That's that's a real serious problem. I know. know yeah. You, you've told it's us it's got to get stretched out before it works correctly. Right. Haven't you? Wasn't you who told us a story one time about was it a was it a uh, an airplane shoot that that wrapped yeah, around it was a, an airframe parachute? Yeah. Yeah. That wrapped uh, around a spinning aircraft and. Yeah, uh, the wing departed a prototype motor glider at the roof. It was an ultralight, and it set up a a rotation around the longitudinal axis uh, several hundred degrees a second. And fast enough that when he was able to pull the uh, reserve parachute handle and deploy it out of the side of a fuselage pod, going basically horizontal to the longitudinal axis, 90 mm-hmm. degrees from nose to tail, straight out the side. And that was to keep it clear of prop and wing and all this stuff. Well, the rotation, it started wrapping itself up right. before the rocket got line stretch. Right. And and then the other wing came on. Right, and yeah. So, so yeah, I can imagine that could you could get yourself in that kind of a jam with this... Uh, Felix Baumgartner is the guy's name, by the way. He uh, mm-hmm. and uh, very, very impressive. Congratulations, fearless to him, Felix, and the whole crew, the whole team that made this thing happen. And, well, uh, we've missed a salient point here in discussing what? the risks and, and 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 the event. What's that? He's the first human being in history mm-hmm. to break the sound barrier without benefit of an aircraft or a machine. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly he without went supersonic. I, yeah, and that's that's very impressive. I, I, you know, and I don't want to demean or diminish the accomplishment here, but you know, he was in well, a you're suit. Going to anyway. He was in a suit that was like you know more substantial well, than some of the airplanes we fly. Well, uh, the suit just just the suit just let him breathe and not have his blood <clears> boil. Yeah. So I don't think the suit that's an environmental it, thing as much as yeah. 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 So he was you know, but it also protect him from. I don't know what the. I don't know if there was a shockwave involved with this, and he went through the shockwave and didn't feel it. Although I question how much of a shockwave might have been generated when you hit supersonic at an altitude so high that it's that Mach one is closer to eight hundred miles an hour than the speed that they'd calculated, which I think was seven twenty. Yeah, Jeff, go ahead. That's the question I have: at what altitude was he at or above Mach one? What altitudes? Right. I don't know the altitudes. I think I know what you're getting at, Jeb. And I think they, you know, they calculated the fact that Mach one is different at different sure. altitudes. No, no, no. And Mach one depends on air density and pressure and temperature. I understand. Right, right. I understand all that. Um, and that's not really my question. Though. Okay. My question is for how long during his descent and at what altitudes. Was he at or above Mach one? Okay, it's too bad there isn't like a system an, an, uh, that we could. I, I, I don't. I don't know. I'm sure. I'm sure. You know, I, it is. Um, um, Hang on a second. Someone should should invent it. Yeah, I know. Uh, okay, let's see here. Stratus uh, 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 space jump uh, Mach one. Wrong one. Wrong one. Let's see what that gets us here. Uh, let's see now. Uh, there's so many stories about this to figure out which one is going to answer oh, yeah. my, my mean, question. Uh, um, 
let's see now, speed of sound, Red Bull Stratus. Uh, oh, I don't know. I don't know. Came in beginning. They, to- they may not have calculated that quite yet, too, because there was a lot of telemetry and a lot of data gathering done yeah, as part right, of this. Right. They tried to get as much scientific benefit out of this as they could. Uh, but that, that's a that's a serious question. I mean, at what altitude did he break Mach one? At what altitude did he reach his maximum speed, uh-huh. which was a lot uh-huh. higher than they expected? Uh-huh. Right. Uh, yeah, he was doing like one point two four. One point two four at the number I heard. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's what I heard too. Yeah, that's, that's yeah, falling, they, but yeah, they so were shooting speak. for one point one. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, all they wanted was one point oh one. Really. Yeah. Yeah. So. It was pretty impressive. Now, as a new media guy, I was also very, very impressed by all the live streaming media and, you know, all that coverage. That was pretty fascinating how they, uh, you know, the the quality. I mean, my goodness, you know, I, I've seen podcasts that didn't have pictures as clear as uh, as oh, they yeah. were, they were, you know, transmitting from 24 miles. Um, it, it was all pretty impressive. Um, it really was a lot better than what they had when uh, when Joe Kittinger yeah, uh, well, set this uh, set this the the previous well, record for well, a yeah, like he had a sixteen hundred two thousand eight hundred feet. Right. That was nineteen sixty. I know. Right. Really, you, you know, that's the other thing about this. It's really cool. A that he's still with us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. B that he was a participant here. Yeah. He was he was like Capcom. He was Capcom guy there. Yeah, and something uh, you know, and well, and yeah, and 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 he did. Uh, you know, he, apparently there was a couple of points where oh, on the ascent. Uh, Baumgartner's um, visor fogged up. Yep. And, uh, in fact, he basically was blinded, I guess. He couldn't see for a few minutes. And uh, Kittinger talked him, you know, talked him out of that, talked him down, you know, uh, reasoned with him on how to fix it, and, and they got it resolved. And, and it was all very cool. And, and I, I just it just blows me away that, that this guy is still around and still active and still interested and still participating in this kind of stuff. Yeah, it's very I, cool. I know some other people who have... Oh, how should I put this? Who have who have deservedly earned a few firsts in their career and, and been recognized for them, um, wouldn't have uh, participated in this by any stretch of the imagination. They would have they would have just walked away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's yeah. really cool to me that Kittinger uh, played such a heavy role in this. It's yeah. really cool. Apparently, well, he, he and Felix became became yeah. pals. You know, I mean, it's like they really did bond. And uh, I don't know whether it's a father son thing or a big well, brother Joe's, younger brother Joe's, thing or. Joe's a really nice guy. Have you met him, dude? And he's been he flew the new American standard biplane on the tour around Sun and Fun for years. Oh really? Yeah. I met him up there. I met him down there. I don't know, uh eighty six, eighty seven. Uh I bought rides so I could shoot back at him flying the airplane because, you know, the, the the pilot flies from the back and the three passengers sit up in front. Uh I've had beers and burgers with him there on the grounds uh, back in the early 90s. I mean, and it was years after meeting him and and getting to be an acquaintance and and, and all this before I even knew about that 102,000-foot skydive. Mm -hmm. And I read about it somewhere, and I go, wow, Joe Kittinger. I wonder if he's related to the guy I know from Sun and Fun. (laughs) And and went into the description of the guy, and I went, oh, my God! Yeah, that's, really. the, that's the guy I've been flying with multiple times, and wow, that that should be what's on the board there when they say you know 
air tours 45 bucks it yeah, should see. be air tours with skydiving pioneer 45 bucks yeah well yeah. now now you get more than 45 bucks he's pretty famous now right. so uh, well I, while we were talking here while y'all were talking here i used my tricorder yes and uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> here's here's some interesting tidbits yeah um uh, Baumgartner, this is according to the website here, and this was all written before the, the jump, but um, uh, basically they were, they were saying that he will accelerate from standstill to the speed of sound um, in 40 seconds or less. And that's from zero to 690, approximately 690 miles per hour in 40 seconds or less. That's pretty interesting. That's wow. And then, and wow. then and they're, they're saying he'll, he'll have have to do 690 at that altitude or thereabouts to match the speed of sound uh and he'll do that um at about 100,000 feet yeah mm-hmm. he just barely started falling uh-huh so yeah. tw- it takes 28,000 feet uh in that <sighs> air to accelerate from zero to 690 uh <sighs> and it took 40 seconds or, or thereabouts to to fall 28,000 feet um yeah, big big brass. Yeah, big brass. What's, yeah. The what's the acceleration of gravity? And it's thirty-two like feet, feet per second, second squared. Thirty-two feet per second. Per thirty-two second. feet per second squared. Yeah, I've experienced that of just enough time stepping out of an airplane mm-hmm. to be able to relate to what a breathtaking, I mean, literally, first sensation that is at about five thousand feet. Right. But but when you're jumping down in the atmosphere, you don't experience that you, much acceleration. Exactly, you Be- don't excel. You got to be accelerating a whole lot faster up there, and I'm just wondering well, what that g force felt like. Well, they didn't feel any g force. No, 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 no. You both got it wrong. Okay, you're accelerating at the same rate initially. Yeah. Okay. The, the first, cu- yeah, the first couple of seconds that you're, you're, whether it's at 5,000 feet or 128,000 feet, the first couple of seconds, you're roughly accelerating at the, at the same rate. When you start decelerating, when, you, when your rate of acceleration starts to slow, is, is, you know, as, as, the, as drag takes over. Right, as you kind term, of approach yeah, terminal ter- velocity. Terminal velocity right. for a falling skydiver at, say, I don't know, five ten thousand feet is what, Dave? 120 miles an hour, 120 knots? About 120 in a stable spread. Right, right. Um, and that's... That's because of drag. Right. Of course, Baumgartner didn't have right. any drag. Yeah. That's how he accelerated and continued to accelerate. Right. So I would submit, and this is just kind of thinking, thinking uh, that, that uh, Baumgartner didn't feel any Gs because he was in more or less pure free fall, whereas David, when he jumped out at 12,000 feet, felt, I, don't want, I want to call it negative Gs, because the air was slowing him down. Yeah, but you go from standing still, even though you're moving horizontally, to falling. That inertia wants to leave behind parts of your body. Okay, the first, mm-hmm. that step. Yeah. Okay, that's see, okay from yeah. that, that. Well, that's where yeah. it all starts, right? Right. Yeah. The, the, part, Which, the stuff in your inner ear, contents of your stomach, uh, <laughs> your brain floating in what that little bit of uh, fluid that surrounds it. My they shorts. all kind yeah. of react with inertia in mind and resist the change. Yeah, well, that's not the only thing that'd be resisting the change in my case. But uh, yeah, all right. One it, other quick thing before we leave this. Yeah, go ahead. It was an anniversary of Chuck Yeager's first 
flight through the sound barrier. I saw that, and he went up and and flew it again, or or rode along, right? Yeah, at 30,000. He was even higher than that when he did it the first time. Yeah, so... So but it's a, even he has never done it without an airplane. That's right. <laughs> so it's an it's a weekend of high altitude records, and uh, so anyways, congratulations to these Stratos folks. It's pretty cool, crazy. I but think they ought cool. to change his name from his nickname from Fearless to uh, Boom. Boom. <laughs> that's okay. Fearless Felix to Boom Felix. <laughs> boom. That's right. That's what they call him. Was for there now. in fact a sonic boom? I don't. I don't know. I can't imagine there wasn't enough air to make a boom. Was there? I don't know. Well, you know, th- there was a question about that in one of the stories that, that that he said he didn't feel himself go through the shock wave. Right. Uh, and I have to presume that at some point you are going to create a shock wave and then start slowing down back through it again. Because when he started hit thick air, he was already probably he was already going Mach one plus, and then he starts to run into atmosphere, and you start to decelerate steadily from that point, whatever that is. Uh, so I figure, yeah, he had to hit a shock wa- or create a shock wave at some point for however long it lasted. But here's the question: If a man booms in space and there's nobody there to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, folks, to episode 307 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. I'm here talking with my two good friends in the uh, virtual hangar, and uh, I don't know, maybe, I'm, I'm not sure whether we've what? actually talked about airplanes yet. People yell at us when we don't talk about airplanes right away, but... Well, we were talking and, and, about and, flying. Yeah, we're talking, well, yeah, we're talking about flying. Je- Jeb, go ahead. And do, and do you get to soil your shorts in the woods later on? <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, that, that, uh, <laughs> that charming image comes from our friend Jeb Burns. Inside, who's talking to us from Sarasota, Florida? How you doing, Jeb? I'm about right. <laughs> so far, anyways, <laughs> sure sounds like it. <laughs> you haven't jumped out of any balloons lately, so uh... I have not jumped out of any balloons. I have not jumped uh, out of anything lately. Um, few things I've tried to jump into, but we won't. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and that and that other voice out there is Dave Higdon, who's talking to us from uh, Wichita, Kansas. How are you doing, David? Just wonderful. Just wonderful. Finished up a project today. Had a surprise one dropped on me yesterday. Got to do some beautiful day uh, uh, motorcycle riding yesterday. And even hung out in an airport for a little while. And uh, and uh, kicked the tire of a tailor craft that the owner can't quite decide he's ready to sell. Oh, yeah. You've been dreaming about that airplane for a while now, huh? Now, this is a different one. Different owner. Uh-huh. Uh, but he seems to be going through that same uh, episode of ambivalence about it. Well, I'm not flying it. I really should get rid of it. It's going to need some stuff, but I just can't bring myself to. Uh, dude, I understand. It's really hard to part with an airplane you've had for a long time. That's that's emotionally rendering. I can it's imagine. Not quite that. like a divorce, but for one thing, you're getting rid of all of it instead of just half. Right. Yeah. So. And I'm Jack Hodgson, and I'm up here at uh, uh, Lookout Point, uh, high atop Lookout Point in Nottingham, New Hampshire. Lookout. Lookout. Point. Lookout, where it's like a bazaar. We had our first frost the other day, the first time the temperature dropped below freezing, um, and then today it got to like 75. So it's uh, you know, well, it's New England, so that's par for we, the course. We had t- two nights forecast last week to frost, and it never got close either night. What is this frost? Yeah, Jeb, speak? for your benefit, frost. Yeah, it's it's. <laughs> yeah, you you wouldn't understand. Don't worry. I about it. I know he knows it. I've seen him clean it off the wing of the Debbie with a credit card. 
<laughs> didn't you, Jeb? Didn't it you tell ex- me? I think it was an expired phone card. I think. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm saying, Jeb. Didn't you tell me a story one time about some Florida friend down there who found themselves in a frost situation with their car and and was uh-huh. just completely stumped by the whole idea? <laughs> I mean, just just could. Was it you who told me this story? Yeah, well, I don't know if which story it was. I, I'm familiar with people. Um, person I'm thinking about um, was born in Illinois. Uh, but it lived in Florida for a number of years, and, and one morning found frost on the car, and completely wigged out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, you know what? You know. So see this little gesture. This is my little violin. Just you know, doing. Yeah. I know. I, I I understand. Yeah. So I, I, anyway, well, there was a guy in my Navy boot company uh, who was uh, a Puerto Rican. Uh, <laughs> and he, where were you doing boot? Great Lakes Naval Training Center, just above North Chicago in Illinois. Mm -hmm. What time of year? Uh, We all reported just before, uh, just before Halloween, and we started boot the middle of November. Oh man! Okay, it was about to get cold up there, huh? No, it was already cold. Yeah, yeah, it it was already cold and windy. Yep, yep. So, anyways. All right, airplanes. Uh, there's uh, so this. I don't know. Is this a serious story, De- uh, Jeb? Jeb, I think you put this on the list. The uh, GAO made some recommendations about something or other. Are you? I don't know. I don't know how serious it is. Um, the uh, thing that a I put it on there, kind of more as a uh, placeholder or, or a, a marker, or yardstick. But uh, in pulling through that a little bit. Um, Recommendations that they made uh, were twofold. Uh, some recommendations they made to the FAA. Let me, let me back up. And this whole study um, has to do with, uh, uh, quote, general aviation safety, unquote. And uh, the subtitle is uh, additional FAA efforts could help identify and mitigate safety risks. And uh, there's, there's some okay stuff in here. There's some, some stuff that uh, um, is important for the GAO, the Government Accounting Office, to uh, have on record. Uh, they're on, in support of the uh, Gen- General Aviation Joint Steering Committee uh, and some of the things that they're trying to do with the FAA. But here, here's where this thing all falls down. And, and as I wrote in um, uh, my Aviation Safety Magazine editorial for November, so just stuff that doesn't pass the laugh test here. Um, two things: one, they want to well, they want the FAA to require operators to record and and record with the FAA the number of hours their aircraft are flying each year. Plus, they want airmen pilots to disclose to the FAA um, their recurrent training efforts and, and all this, uh, a bunch of other activity statistics. And, like, I don't think so, guys. Um, they, they recommend this. GAO is recommending this as a way for the FAA to refine its record keeping and, and, and get a better handle, uh, a more accurate handle, if you will, on... Um, uh, the activity rates, the activity levels uh, throughout the industry. Uh, from that, of course, are derived accident rates on a 100,000-hour basis, uh, whatever the accident rate is, two per 100,000, whatever. Um, they have to determine the activity levels to be able to estimate the, uh, the, uh, the safety rates. <clears throat> well, they've been doing this for years. Each year they have a forecast conference. Dave, you're familiar with all this. Yeah. Um, 
Um, they, they look at all kinds of data that is out there. They look at student starts. They look at um, um, fuel sales. They look at airframe sales. They look at engine sales. They look at um, medical certificate data, medical certificate application data, all these kinds of things to come up with, with um, the activity rates. And no one except GAO here all of a sudden in recent years has, has really complained too much about the accuracy of that data. It's accepted to be you know, accurate and uh, it's, it's what's being used. <laughs> but, but here's the other thing. Do you really think that in this day and age that um, a pilot or an airman, is, I mean a pilot or an operator is going to send in accurate data? I mean, come on. I, uh, I, I'm intrigued at these four recommendations because, uh, you know, the collect and maintain data on each certificated pilot's recurrent training, uh, on their flight hours. And it, it's been, you know, like Jeb just alluded to, it's been a long time joke in the industry, the hours estimate that goes into calculating most of the data that we use uh, and into the forecast conference. Uh, the look back. Uh, that's survey data. It's provided voluntarily by people that are contacted by postcard. Uh, I've always been intrigued why they didn't use uh, the hours reported on medical renewals. Right. Well, they do. Uh, but do they actually use that? Yeah, absolutely. They okay. Do. I, I was never sure whether they use that. I thought there might have been an issue with uh, them using it. Uh, but the. Uh, it, it starts out by acknowledging that the accident rate has been declining for 12 straight years, mm-hmm. that safety is improving, and that we uh, seem to be, well, this is an old one, seem to be of a habit of repeating most of the old mistakes over and over again, and, that, and those being the, the, the root cause of the majority of our accidents, like trying to fly on empty gas tanks, like VFR and IFR, uh, those uh, so its recommendations for all of this is first spend five years getting better data hmm. and setting goals for how you want to use that data. And down to the last one is once you've set those goals, create a program and then call us back in five years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sorry, but that's – wow. Uh, if I had turned that in for my high school senior project <laughs> – I'm afraid my government and social studies teacher would have thrown me out a window. Well, we see here from the data that you've got a problem, so I suggest you get better data. (laughs) Okay. And now this is when I'm glad that I don't wear a hat all the time because I would ruin it with my brain exploding on this one. Yeah. I mean, well, uh, and what do they think the NTSB does with some of this data? What do they think AOPA does with uh-huh. the, uh, not coincidentally, the NAL report that's farther mm-hmm. down the list? Uh, I, I honestly look at what uh, the Air Safety Foundation has done since my friend Joe died as uh, absolutely one of the best examples of what a private entity can do when it's got full access to public data. Mm-hmm. And the bubbly data here is not subject to uh, the vagaries of people's reporting to the same extent uh, that the uh, annual NTSB calculations are because uh, Air Safety Foundation refines its hours for flying hours data a little bit more. 
they qualify it a little bit more. Uh, and then they do an interpretation job that's just unparalleled. And, you know, uh, they come back and say, you know, we need to work on this. It's not the problem we haven't identified the problems. It's not that we haven't figured out that we've got uh, some issues. It's that we haven't freaking learned to do it right. Mm-hmm. We're not listening. We're not listening. It's interesting. Um, I don't think that they. I don't think GAO or NTSB or AOPA can create a program that's going to make the people who don't listen no. listen. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned the Null report that uh, is on the list here. Um, anything interesting come out of that uh, report this year? Have you uh, had a chance to? I haven't had a chance to sit down with it. Um, the the some of the opening artwork on it. Uh, I glanced at you know just to look at the trend line. Let me open my my copy. I just look at the trend lines. Uh, um, but uh, it, it, as Dave said, it looks like a continuing, uh, uh, more continuing decline. How, however, flat that decline is. Um, there we go. Um, some nice artwork on the cover. Um, let's it is a see. nice image, isn't it? I like that. Yeah, I like that too. Well, uh, and it's worth remembering that the, the, this year's NAL report is looking at 2010 accidents as the right. last game. This is not last year's report, not 2011 report. Uh, they spend a lot of time crunching a lot of data, uh, analyzing it. That's why these things are always a year you know, downstream. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they got 2011, 2010 data about midway through 2011, right. and it took them to now to produce the report on 2010. You know, plus, um, you know, it takes the NTSB some time to turn around uh, its its investigation reports. Right. So it can't always be done. Right. Right. Lickety split as much one, as you might want to be. One last subject here on the uh, while we're talking about uh, sort of the national view of of aviation safety, um, the uh, acting administrator uh, spoke a couple times in Wichita in the last few days. And uh, I came across a story here that I put on the list. It's down lower in the list for you guys to to find. It's actually probably at the very bottom of the list. But uh, um, he this is apparently when he spoke to the uh, Wichita Aero Club, David. And that's uh, correct. Yeah, the, the headline quote there, the headline uh, that they pulled out was uh, uh, "FAA to redefine aviation in near future," says Chief. You know, it caught my attention because, you know, for for one wild and crazy moment, I actually thought that he really, you know, there was going to be some example of how it was going to change. You know, of course, well, it's, it's going to redefine aviation. That's what that's what Molly's Molly's a good reporter and she's a pilot and she knows this stuff. But I doubt seriously that she wrote that headline. Yeah, no, that's the way it works usually. Because right? Yeah. The implication there is the FAA is set about redefining aviation, and what he said was that the decisions that they're about to make on on uh, uh, programs that they're working on will redefine the aviation, what, what aviation looks like over the next 25, 30, 40 years. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the good news, bad news is that we're doing that on kind of an evolutionary basis since just about – 1904. Yeah, right. Well, and, and the thing that the thing that, that kind of you know I noted of here is that it doesn't say whether it's redefining aviation for for better or for worse. It's you know, I mean, of course, it's going to redefine aviation. That's you know, that big an organization is going to have an impact. I want to know has, whether has, has Webster's been notified? Has Funk and Wagnall been notified? Yeah, right. We're yeah. going to redefine the word aviation. Yeah. One quote in this uh, in this uh, Wichita Eagle story that uh, uh, quoting the uh, acting administrator that caught my attention. Let's see, you know where to, where to go here. Um, 
he's talking a lot about about you know obviously about aviation safety and 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 how to reduce the number of accidents and one paragraph here says today quote essentially what we're doing is preventing the last accident end quote huerta said an approach that has served the industry well and i i just thought that was an interesting quote because i wouldn't necessarily feel like you know preventing the last accident was the best way to do it but I guess I it's the only either. way you got, right? I wouldn't either. I was going to um, say, go ahead, Jeb, while I think about this. Yeah. Um, on one level, um, I agree with him, and he's right, that um, this industry <clears throat> um, is, is hard. Is, it's difficult for it to be proactive and to prevent things from happening before they happen because we're human pilots are human and designers are human and engineers and manufacturers are all human and we can always dream up new and inventive ways to screw the pooch <laughs> um so from that standpoint yes we're always trying to prevent or or and we're always learning from regardless of whether we're trying to prevent it or not we're always learning from the last accident now, that having been said, that does not mean that that's the only thing that this industry does. Um, we do try to be proactive and try to prevent things from happening um, before they happen and before they bite somebody in the butt. Um, I don't know, Dave, take it from there. If I haven't already you know, screwed that pitch too. No, no. Uh, first off, and it, it, I, I second everything Jeb said here. Uh, preventing yesterday's accident or the last accident is really important because, first off, it's if it's something that's truly new that hasn't been done before, uh, the only way that we're going to figure out how to keep that from happening in the future is to solve what happened in that past. That's the NTS. That's where the NTSB generally excels, and then it's up to the FAA to look at it and see whether design action or worthiness directive or regulatory change uh, needs to be a part of preventing that last accident from becoming a next accident. Uh, but there's always going to be an issue with the thing that we don't know. And as much as I hate to, uh, it throws me back to a, a quote that Donald Rumsfeld was was known for in the build-up to the war with uh, Iraq. There are known <laughs> knowns. There are things that we know we know. There are known unknowns. That is to say there are things that we now know we don't know. But there are also unknown unknowns. There are things that we do not know we don't know. And this is where Dave gets to quote, and that's the stuff that kills you hardest. Okay. That's, okay. that's where and you need a new hat. That's, that's right. Uh, that's where you need to the, figure out what the definition of is is. Well, <laughs> no, the, let, let's, let's go. There's a really good and famous example in aviation design called the de Havilland Comet. Exactly. Yeah, okay. Okay, the de Havilland Comet was the world's first operating, operative jet airliner. Beautiful piece of machinery. Yes. Uh, just extraordinary design. Uh, design companies, design and manufacturers had 
relatively limited experience with building pressurized structures. Right. Boeing built a four-engine piston airliner that was pressurized, but it didn't get to near the altitudes and low temperatures that the de Havilland Comet did. Or pressure uh, the, ratios. Right. Uh, and, and there's the, the cycling of the aluminum, uh, the, the fuselage swells when you get up to altitude and, and, and shrinks back. Then there's the temperature change that you get from maybe going for 110 degrees on the ground to minus 60 at altitude and doing that in about 30 minutes. Uh, our biggest, Boeing's biggest experience with pressurized aircraft up to the 707 was with the Boeing B-29 and then the B-47 and the B-52 aircraft, none of which are fully, completely pressurized fuselages. Mm -hmm. De Havilland applied some of the best technology that they had to the, to the Comet, but there was a, a known, an unknown unknown there. And that's what happens to the metal alloys when it's subjected to the repeated expansion and contraction on a physical basis and on a temperature-based basis from repeated flight cycles. Uh, there was an unknown unknown about how to use fasteners to connect all the parts of the structure together so that they did not become wear points with all that cycle changing. And eventually, and not very far into their, their tenure, a, a comet disintegrated at altitude and unfortunately splashed into open ocean and the, the, the wreckage largely wasn't recovered. And then another one happened. And they grounded the airplane, and they inspected him. They didn't find anything. And I believe it was the third crash where they actually had <coughs> enough structure to recover that they were able to do metallurgical work on the, on the airframe and find out, much to their horror, that the fastening technology, the techniques, and the metallurgy all worked against the airplane. It, it work-hardened the airplane until it became so brittle that at the low temperatures, a little tiny crack would propagate very quickly. The metal would shatter and the airplane disintegrate. Mm -hmm. And it caused a complete re-look, uh, re-examination of the engineering that went into pressurized airplanes like the 707 and the de Havilland airplanes that followed. But now we see that phenomenon happen rarely like with an Aloha airplane where uh, corrosion played a, 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 a large role, but also flight cycles uh, and the Southwest airplane uh, more recently, but just a couple of years ago, that lost a big chunk of coal. Same issue, uh, metallurgical weakening. Originally, we didn't know about that. That was an unknown unknown that bit us hard. And once in a while, we discover new ones. Yeah. They're well, rarer, but they still happen. In in talking about um, reacting versus being um, proactive versus uh, um, uh, you know catching things after they happen versus catching things before they happen. Um, looking at um, <clears throat> design and certification standards, uh, we can find some examples of how we're both look looking forward and backward. Um, for example, a real simple and quick and easy one is uh, when the first plastic airplanes, I call them plastic, were, were being certificated, the Cirrus, the Diamonds. Um, how do you handle lightning protection in those airplanes? We know from experience uh, of aircraft being you know, blown out of the sky uh, after a lightning strike that we have to have some lightning protection built into them. 
how do we go about that? What are the best practices, et cetera, et cetera? Um, seems like maybe we got that right because I don't rem- I don't recall too many uh, cirruses or diamonds or whatever uh, uh, falling out of the sky after hitting, being hit by lightning. And so, I know there's been a couple hit by lightning. Yeah, uh, yeah, and you know there have been. Yeah, uh, which is not a big issue for aluminum airplanes, except what it may do to your avionics exactly. and, and, and a little hole that it'll burn through the structure. Uh, it's very limited, but with the airframe kind of insulated, you know, they embed wire mesh in the uh, in the uh, uh, outer layer of the composites to provide a path for the lightning to go mm-hmm. through the airframe without doing damage, uh, necessarily bad damage to the avionics, but mostly let the airplane survive. Uh, there have been examples of this unknown unknown in GA uh, elsewhere, too. The V-tail uh, structural issues on the Bonanzas of years ago. Uh, it turned out that it, it was partly operating error and, and mm-hmm. partly a design issue. Uh, the airplane was so clean that it was not difficult to get it past V&E, pulled too hard on it, and the V-tail broke. Yeah. Uh, they beefed that up. Uh, they slapped a few pilots silly and said, V-N-E, pay attention. Uh, those accidents largely went away. Mm-hmm. Uh, Embraer had an issue with one of its uh, airliners years ago. I believe it was the Bandarandi, the EMB-120, where they were having structural issues with the tail. And it was something to do with how the uh, how, how the metallurgy was treated and how it was uh, uh, corrosion-proofed that uh, didn't let it uh, hold up quite as well, and yeah. they started coming off in service. So, Yeah, so yeah. it's all pretty yeah. interesting. We, we, if somebody want to finish up the thought yeah, here, because we need to move using, on. Yeah, using my tricorder, there's uh, a pretty good Wikipedia <laughs> page uh, on, the, on the comments. On the comment, uh, yeah, I think I've seen yeah. that. That's quite a story. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And another thing, that just to um, add fuel to the fire here, so to speak, um, <clears throat> a lot of the skins on the Comet uh, um, were joined, obviously, by rivets. But instead of drilling the holes or using some other method to punch the holes in the skins, they were literally using punches. Um, um, I don't know the, the type of uh, punch they were using, probably. A bed uh, sheet fed bed thing. I don't know, um, but the using the punching um, automatically also had um, some impact and not a favorable one on uh, crack propagation mm-hmm. around the holes around mm-hmm. the rivets. So that was another issue. Um, the square windows. Yeah, the big the windows is the thing yeah. that comes to my mind. Is that they well, had the square really... windows was a big issue. Look at look at a modern jetliner. Um, you don't see uh, square windows. You see round ones or right. oval shaped ones. There's there's no sharp corners there. Yeah, yeah. There's no no corners in pressurized airplane windows. Yeah. Uh, Beach used oval ones in the King Airs. Uh, Gulfstream mm-hmm. uses oval shaped ones on the on the G series jets. Uh, Cessna uses kind of a rectangular shape one. Uh, they're taller than they are wide, uh, but they have very uh, uh, widely radius corners right. because square corners produce uh, uh, pressure points. Mm-hmm. Uh, that punching actually metal hardened uh, or work hardened the metal right in the vicinity of the hole. Uh, that stamping that went into punching it. Right. I can easily I, imagine it stressing that area around the punch and. Uh, 
Yeah, a different alloy uh, doesn't react the same way. Uh, that was one of the things that they found, and they, uh, they, they moved to some different alloys that didn't suffer with the same tendency to work harden. And if you, if you don't understand what work hardening is, when you're done listening to UCAP, go into your <laughs> closet, get a wire coat hanger, and then start to bend the hook part back and forth and back and forth. First, it'll get hot. Then it'll start to get kind of soft and pliable, and then it'll snap off. That's work hardening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, hey, we got to move on here. We'll be here forever. Um, it's all pretty interesting, though. You, so, but you can learn from past accidents and apply it to future it's ones. It's the only thing yeah, we've absolutely. got sometimes. But that nor- it's sometimes it's the only thing we've got. Um, but I, I would, I, mean, I guess the only quibble I have is to leave the impression in the, in the mind of the listener that that's the only way we learn. Yeah. Hurry up, people. We're losing the light. Gather around, gather around. Okay, this is the scene where the members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. In this scene, their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the organizations they work with. So your motivation for this scene is anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. Of course, you knew that, right? Because it's in the script. Okay, places, everybody. Lights. Quiet on set. Let's get it in this take this time. Camera rolling. Audio. Speed. And marker. UCAP disclaimer. Scene 23, take four. And action. We here at the Uncontrolled Airspace Podcast are very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big help. Thank you. Hey, David, you mentioned that you got to spend uh, a day or two over the weekend at an airport, and uh, so did I. And I want to tell you a little bit about this because it was pretty cool. Uh, for a few years now, uh, since uh, since we've become kind of uh, acquaintances, um, uh, UCAP pal uh, Rick S, aka Laminar, in the forums, um, this is the guy who uh, flies uh, his uh, no electric system Cub down to our brunches down in Nashua, and oh, yeah. uh, okay. and is a big glider guy as well. Um, you may recall a, f- a few years back he brought on a trailer he brought the uh, powered glider that had the one one bladed prop on it he brought it down to Nashua to show off to all of us and uh, i talked about it a little bit on the on the podcast way back when for for years now uh, for a few years now he's been inviting me around this time of year to come up to northern new hampshire to uh, join him and a bunch of his glider buddies at an event that takes place at uh, gorham new hampshire gorham's a little grass uh, strip uh, municipal airport in gorham uh, the, the town of gorham uh, that uh, uh, for about a little over a week, uh, two weekends and and the week in between, um, uh, a bunch of uh, gliding clubs get together and hold what they call wave camp. 
it, it turns out that the uh, the 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 the, uh, the wave the uh, the wind the wave um, that that You're talking forms, about mountain wave. Dude. I am talking about mountain wave. Thank you. That's the word I was looking for. Mountain wave that forms up um, over Mount Washington up in northern New Hampshire. Uh, it then, is legendary. Is it? Yeah, apparently. And so they get together for uh, this long week up there each year uh, with a whole bunch of gliders, and they just have a, a, a good old time flying gliders in the wave and also in some ridge and a little bit of thermal. There's not a lot, apparently not an awful lot of thermal soaring to be done this time of year. But they oh, have this time of year. No. Yeah, but they have a good old time in the mountain wave up there. And uh, he's been inviting me up for some time now to, to kind of check out the uh, the uh, you know events. So you went? So I went up this past weekend. Um, I haven't been able to go for years, um, but this year I was determined, and uh, and I went up. I didn't get to fly for a lot of different reasons, but I got a chance to talk with a lot of these folks and watch them fly and watch the glider uh, operations on the ground and uh, and hear their stories. It was really quite something. They were probably, like I said, this is a grass strip. It's, it's a municipal strip, but it's unpaved. It's a grass strip uh, there in Gorham, New Hampshire. Uh, it uh, it uh, and, and they, the, the, it apparently got started years ago, I mean, like many years ago, dozens of years ago, I guess, uh, when two particular gliding clubs, the uh, the Greater Boston Gliding Club, uh, correction, Soaring Club, and the Post Mills Soaring Club, and Post Mills is the Post Mills Airport up in Vermont, where Laminar is based, and uh, they, these two clubs decided to get together up in Gorham to, uh, to have fun with the mountain wave. And uh, it's apparently grown over the years so that now uh, gliders, if you do a search on this uh, on the web, you'll find gliding clubs all over the Northeast that talk about how they're going up to the to wave camp up at Gorham. Um, they also call it the Gorham Encampment. And, uh, and uh, so I arrived on Saturday morning. It was towards the end of the event. They had been there for over a week when I arrived um, and had mixed results. Some days they were able to fly and some days not because of the weather. Um, but it turned out, luckily for me anyways, that Saturday was apparently the best day um, of the whole encampment this year. And they were just uh, just flying like crazy. They had a, a whole bunch of gliders. Uh, they must have had, um, I, I wish I had counted them. It was a mistake not to count them. But uh, there was probably upwards of 20 uh, gliders there on the field. Uh, and uh, they'd all been dragged up in their trailers, obviously. And they were when I arrived, they were just starting to fly for the day. Uh, they had two tow planes that were alternating between pulling, you know, one after another after another. And uh, at one point, they got nearly all of those gliders in the air all at one time. And uh, they were all just having a great old time uh, flying uh, over the over the hill there. That's the the so Gorham is just to the north of Mount Washington, and so they. Uh, but because of the way apparently some rotor turbulence uh, forms up, um, instead of taking off and on this particular day they were taking off towards the west, and they would you would think they'd turn left and head over to Mount Washington, but apparently that's not the ideal way to do it. So they they'd actually make kind of this big 270 to the right and uh, go down another valley. But uh, they were all heading off and. And uh, they were all routinely getting their gliders up to like, uh, well, they were only allowed legally to go up to 18,000. And many of them were getting right up to that limit. Um, they had a uh, they had a window uh, negotiated for later in the day um, where they were able to go up to like I don't know what you know some ungodly altitude seventy thousand feet or something like that. Oh, um, and uh, they didn't uh, apparently the highest um, on this particular day was like about twenty thousand feet or something like that twenty twenty two or I think they said, but. Uh, but they were all routinely getting up and bumping against the 18 and the high teens and that kind of thing. And, hey, that's uh, a long way from the 9,500 feet that some guy uh, named Berenger 
first experienced in what's what what's acknowledged to be the first recorded wave flight at Mount Washington in 1938. Really? Yeah. Wow. So uh, it was quite an it was quite an event. I, I uh, I'm I'm going to try and hook up with them uh, sometime in the future and actually fly. But uh, um, it, it was uh, it, it's quite a thing. I you know and. One one observation I have from this is something that they kind of pointed out to me, but it, 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 and it's really interesting. I've, I've talked over the years about the fact that there are some airports and some aviation activities that seem to be more social and 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 active and alive than others. And I've talked about the skydiving folks um, being that way. And uh, and uh, Laminar pointed out to me that uh, that uh, the gliding is very social and very much of a group activity. And the reason is that it's pretty hard to fly a glider by yourself. You, you, you need a crew. You, you need a, uh, you know, I mean, I don't know what you need exactly, but it appears that what you need, of course, is a tow plane of some sort or a tow device of some sort. Um, you need like well, wing runners. Think- Think, you need think people about to the logistics you. here. Yeah. Okay. Uh, unless you've got a motor glider, you've got to have somebody to tow your butt up. Right. And there needs to be somebody else involved on the ground there to make sure that the lope, rope gets laid out straight, right. hooked up right. Yeah. Because you can't really do that and be in the in the sailplane. Well, you could be there to hook it up and then get in. But and, and and it helps to have somebody hold one wingtip off the ground until you're moving lo- far 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 fast enough, right. fast enough for the wing to stay level on aileron control. Uh, if you land out, landing out being you don't return to the field where you started or some other recognized runway, mm-hmm. uh, you got to get the glider back somehow. Usually, there's somebody that you can call and tow the trailer to you, so you can take it apart, load it up, and tow it right. back to where you started. Right. And so this need for 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 helpers um, enhances the social aspect of this. It makes oh, it, absolutely. You know, and uh, so I'm trying to figure out how to apply this to regular power aircraft, and uh, you know, I, maybe we should require everything. Even 152s should be two pilot required, right? That's I don't know. It's like well, that's I, I, I'm problematic. Just, I'm just really glad yeah. that y'all got out to airports this weekend. I think that's just really cute. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, smart Alec. Hey, I got to an airport. I, 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 I put miles on the motorcycle uh, and, and, and even accomplished some homeowner chores. It was like, wow, uh, there was a hat trick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it would have been a hat trick if I'd actually logged some airtime, but. Uh, it was getting toward the end of the day, and the airplane doesn't have an electrical system. And two miles away from Midcontinent's not a place I want to fly at dusk mm-hmm. in a in a, in a low speed. Uh, no lights airplane. Yeah. So before we move on, I just want to thank uh, uh, Rick S, uh, aka Laminar, and uh, the members of the uh, Post Mill Soaring Club and the Greater Boston Soaring Club and all the other soaring clubs that were represented there. Um, they were all very, very friendly and very, very welcoming. And uh, um, they, uh, you know, they, 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 they looked the other way that that there was this pure pi- power pilot there. 
um, they all kind of, you know. Well, I would bet that some of them were pilot pilots as well as sailplane pilots. Oh, well, that's for oh, yeah. sure. Absolutely. It was interesting, though, to talk to some of them who were not powered pilots. Um, at, at one point while, while uh, Rick was off flying, uh, and I was just wandering around chatting with people, I saw the, uh, the tow plane do something in the air that I thought was interesting. It was just a, a procedural thing that it did that was not what I expected. And I, and I went up to one of, the, uh, one of the ground personnel who was helping Marshall Airplanes, and, and I asked him about this particular thing I had seen. And, uh, and he said, well, you know, the thing is, I'm not a power pilot, so I don't know about flying those airplanes. He says, I don't know whether that was unusual or not. <laughs> <laughs> and so I went, oh, okay, all right, well, there you go. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was uh, um, you know. It was a great day. It was a great day, and so I thank them all for having me and for well, you, you being know, one so of the welcoming. That I think contributes to the social element of, of soaring, because there's a lot of social uh, interaction and hang gliding as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's nice to have somebody help you launch on a windy day, drive the truck down to the landing field if you if you make the landing field and so on. Uh, but there's this whole system of awards, badges. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That you can earn in in soaring, and they all have to be documented and uh, attested to with photo evidence and and, and paperwork, and uh, they're all goal. Well, they're not all goal oriented, but they're all oriented toward the goal of making you a better pilot and expanding your experience base. They have mm-hmm. to do with distance and altitude, uh, straight line out, straight line out and back, triangles. Uh, it, and, it, and it really is kind of fun to uh, to compare notes with other people, how they got their badge, what kind of flight it was, good places to try to duplicate it so that you can get a badge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in my opinion, you know, real pilots don't need motors. Yeah, well, that's what I, that was the joke as I was introducing myself to people. I was trying to be kind of self-deprecating and, you know, I, I wanted to make sure I, would, I had some cred. So I'd say, yeah, I'm a power pilot. And then I'd point to, to Laminar and say, but I'm not a real pilot, you know, like, like him. And uh, so uh, anyways, it was a fun day. I really appreciate it. And uh, it was a beautiful day too. So anyways. Well, wave firing, wave, wave flying is the ultimate ridge soaring. Yeah, apparently it's, uh, I, I still haven't quite wrapped my mind around the physics of the, how the wave works. But uh, it's pretty interesting. I just thought wave was sort of a bigger version of ridge, but it's apparently a kind of a different thing altogether. Oh, the mechanics are totally different. Yeah, right. So we'll talk about that another day. Anyway, related. Yeah. So yeah, first off, they both involve wind. Yes, over hills or uh, across hills. Over, over terrain, over obstructions on the terrain. Okay. Yeah. Velocity plays into how how high they get, how the, they work. The thing I didn't velocity grasp plays into the transition from one to the other. The thing that I didn't grasp was that unlike ridge, wave is on the downwind side of the hill, which is kind of counterintuitive, and that's the part that I'm trying to wrap my head around. But uh, it's all yeah, kind of and, interesting. Yeah, and and it's below the wave is the place you do not want to get into. Oh yeah, that's a, yeah, I've heard that too. So, anyways, more on that later on. Thanks to them for having me and for showing me uh, their their airplanes. It was pretty cool. Yeah, I hope the next time you get him up there you can actually get him in there because there's going to be a moment there when he's in flying with one of you guys in a sailplane where his stomach brain and 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 uh, uh inner ear will all do the opposite of what felix Baumgartner experienced yeah, <laughs> yeah okay hey we're we're starting to reach the end of our allotted time here uh we got a bunch of shout outs which we will definitely do but is there anything else on the main part of the list you, you want to talk about here i'll give you a second look it over 
Look it over. Look it over. The only thing I'd like to throw in here is the the, the NAL report, the 2011 NAL report for right. 210, is on the Air Safety Foundation website. The link will be with us. Highly recommended reading every year because you'll learn some things about mistakes that you can learn from. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure Jeff will put that in the show notes. We'll make sure it gets there. Shout-outs. Oh, well, let's do shout-outs. Okay, let's do shout-outs. A couple of shout-outs here. First of all, it shouldn't go uh, uh, without noting, um, and I think it's 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 a few weeks past now, but it, it should be noted that the uh, Reno Air Races uh, came and went without a hitch, mm-hmm. uh, a, a safe year. Um, they, uh, you know, it, it was basically safe to begin with. They just had a really incredibly bad, bad, unfortunate situation last year. Um, but they did, uh, as we were just talking about, learn from a past uh, issue and, uh, and made it even even safer, and the uh, Reno Air Races uh, were held, and, and I, as I understand it, were, were quite exciting. So uh, congratulations to them for, for uh, yeah, getting everything reorganized and, and, uh, and continuing without a, without a, uh, a pause. And uh, that's, thing, that's my thing for the Reno Air Races. Uh, what else? You got a shout-out? Real quick, I'll, I'll do mine. Randy Babbitt. Mm-hmm. Um, former administrator, yeah, former uh, FAA administrator resigned his post back in December uh, after a, a bogus uh, drunk driving charge. Um, today it was announced he's joined Southwest Airlines as its new senior vice president of labor relations. Babbitt uh-huh. is also a former president of ALPA, the Airline Pilots Association. So this is right up his alley. Um, glad to see him back in the fray, and, and congratulations on the new position. Absolutely. Yes. Man, and he landed a gig at the only airline <clears throat> yeah. in the business that I would even yeah. think twice about him. I, 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 would, I would echo that, exactly. The other one, real quick, mm-hmm. uh, is our friends at AOPA, mm-hmm. uh, who finally uh, um, got the word and have chosen the beach debonair as their next sweepstakes. <laughs> I was wondering if you were going to talk about this. Yeah, okay, go ahead. Um, uh, that's, no, that's, you know, they need to put a bigger engine in it, but other than that, you know, not rock on. Now, what, is it, is it, is it, uh, pretty much stock debonair, or did they, have they done anything to it? Or well, this is a there. There are several flavors of debonair. Um, this is a B thirty three debonair, as I as I understand it. Built in, I think sixty four, something like that. Um, up until sixty six, uh, Beach only put one engine in the debonair. It was a two hundred twenty five horsepower Continental. Um, they didn't That's change four seventy, right? Mm, oh, four seventy. Yes, thank you. You know, it's an IO four seventy, but it's uh, I, I think uh, the dash number at the end is either N or K. I forget which. One of yep. those is a two hundred sixty horsepower engine. One of them is a two hundred twenty five horsepower engine, and Beach was sticking the two twenty five and stuck the two twenty five into this uh, uh, originally. Um, it's a great airplane, um, but with that with that puny little engine in it, uh, it's going to be a little anemic. But um, still, more power to them. Uh, finally, uh, getting around to recognizing uh, what a good airplane that is, and uh, look forward to following that story. Very cool, David. Which, what you, it, it won't be awarded until 2014, so you got time yeah. to get your entries yeah, in. Yeah, exactly, exactly. David, what do you got? I got two. I can do one. Let you do the one that the other one that you got because okay. I, I tweeted that <laughs> other right. one. I think I know what you mean. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, to my friends, uh, uh, old guys, most of them, uh, including Jim Davis uh, and the uh, First Aero Squadron uh, operation down in Columbus, New Mexico, uh, they're starting to get uh, some traction there uh, in uh, 
commemorating and memorializing America's first military unit at its base of operation and its first military action, which was against Mexican raiders and Pancho Villa, like in 1914, the first Aero Squadron. Mm. They flew Curtis Jennies doing recon work. And the airplanes were put on flatbed rail cars and trained down to New Mexico, put together. And they established an operations base there, two squadrons, actually, before it was all said and done. Uh, First Aero Squadron uh, has a website, uh, firstaerosquadron.org. Strongly consider that you uh, check it out. And if you're in that part of New Mexico, and here's a hint, they were patrolling for Mexican bandits and revolutionaries, so it's going to be close to the Mexican border, Columbus, New Mexico. Mm-hmm. Uh, hats off to them for getting this off the ground. It's been a long time in the making. And, you know, a lot of people think that American military power didn't start until we were in World War I. Uh, but that's not true. Uh, General Jack Pershing, Jack Black, Black Jack, he recognized the potential. Yeah. Uh, did his history, knew that we, the, we both sides used balloons for recon during the Civil War. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's one of mine. Go ahead. Um, the one I wanted to make sure didn't go without uh, uh, noting is that uh, UCAP pal Jamie Beckett uh, is, uh, is, mm. uh, um, is sort of in the news right now. Uh, uh, Jamie's uh, been on the podcast a, a handful of times, uh, usually when we're down at Sun and Fun. Uh, Jamie's uh, based out of Winter Haven, Florida, and is quite the evangelist for general aviation, has been doing some really good things uh, through his writing in various publications and uh, his uh, Flight Monkeys uh, uh, website. Uh, and his just general uh, uh, t- talking aviation up all around his community and around the nation uh, was recognized uh, this past week at the uh, AOPA Expo uh, as the recipient of AOPA's 2012 Let's Go Flying Award. Uh, this is uh, as uh, quoting the story from uh, GA News uh, for his efforts in promoting and defending general aviation. And it was uh, awarded down there uh, or over there, I guess, at the uh, Expo uh, on Thursday. So well. Uh, uh, well-deserved, uh, a, a great evangelist and a great uh, a representative for general aviation and a, and a fun, cool guy, uh, Jamie Beckett. Congratulations. You guys want to add anything to that? No. Well, I, yeah, I, congratulations, I, Jamie. Yeah, absolutely. It was, an, it was so inspiring me, to me to see AOPA this smart uh, mm-hmm. that, I, that I actually did a tweet about it. So there you go. <laughs> I got to go fire up the old Twitter machine now. Anything that motivates David to actually go out and tweet something is like a big deal. Uh, Anyways, it it is for me, man. I mean, uh, and uh, my last shout out is of a similar vein. Every year, the National Aeronautics Association uh, awards the Wesley O. McDonald Distinguished Statesman of Aviation Award. Uh, well, this year I'm, I'm, I'm acquainted with two of them and a long time friend of a third out of the five that they named. Uh, they, uh, awarded it to Chris Kraft, who some of you might remember from NASA fame. Yeah. Uh, I believe Ed Harris played him in Apollo 13. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Irving Statler, who's done some great work, uh, in aviation. Then, uh, Flying Magazine's old acquaintance of mine, the publisher there, Dick Koenig, uh, and he's been a promoter of aviation for a long time, uh, an artist that I got to know through the International Society of Aviation Photographers, Keith Ferris, 
And if you've ever seen the B-17 mural at the Air and Space Museum, you've seen one of Keith's larger scale works. Uh, he's truly a remarkable artist. Uh, but the one that really tugged at my heart spring, strings is my longtime bro, Henry Ogrodzinski, from the National Association of State Aviation Officials. Uh, I don't know of anybody more deserving than Henry because he's spent his whole life helping promote and, and better aviation from when he was in PR at EAA to when he worked for Gamma, uh, his short stint at uh, Gulfstream, his time running the Dayton Air Show, and for about a decade and a half now running the SAO. Uh, the guy really puts his heart and soul into it. And, Henry, if you happen to hear this by some long shot, I do love the Daddy Warbucks look. It works for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it. Time to stick a fork in this one. Jeb Burnside uh, is a uh, – first of all, I've got to say your name properly. Jeb Burnside is a uh, – <laughs> I don't know. I like the bird side. No, 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 no. Uh, is a uh, freelance aviation writer and editor serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Jeb, what's going on? Working on anything fun? Yeah, I'm working on my my agenda for the next board meeting. <laughs> yeah, I know. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> no, well, lacking that, where can uh, just, people? F- just, yeah, go just ahead. Got out, just got finished with another uh, issue of Aviation Safety Magazine, which is now in the can. Uh, nice little piece from our own uh, Dave Higdon here on uh, um, IFR equipment allergies. Um, not so much, um, um, you know, the airborne kind, but the ground-borne kind. Um, let's see, uh, an interesting little piece on uh, bold print items on your checklist, the stuff that you really need to remember. Uh, above all, of course, fly the airplane. Uh, all kinds of uh, cool and neat stuff going on there. Um, working on a couple of other little projects here and there and uh, uh, trying to stay busy. So, yeah. yeah. Um, and where can yeah. people find you on the Internet? Oh, uh, let's see, aviationsafetymagazine.com, jeburnside.com. Uh, AEA.net, um, Facebook, Twitter, whatever. Got it. Just, just ignore all that. If you Google me, just ignore all that stuff about the goats. They lie. They lie. They lie. I Dave, say, yeah, ignore the wants and warrants on him, too. And Dave Higdon is an aviation photographer, an aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. David, what's going on with you? Are you working on anything fun? Well, I'm working on some fun stuff that I can talk about in a couple of more weeks, but in terms of things that I'm particularly happy with, uh, the October World Aircraft Sales Magazine has an interview that I did uh, last month with uh, uh, our favorite business uh, aviation association top guy, uh, Ed Bolin. Uh, we have a twelve quest, uh, ten questions interview with him in the October World Aircraft Sales, uh, looking at uh, how things have changed since uh, last year, going into the NBAA convention, which is uh, just a couple of, I think, two weeks off from tomorrow. Hang on a second. Let me look at this calendar. That's about, that that's about right, yeah. Oh, yeah, man. Two weeks. i got to be there two weeks from tomorrow. I should probably start working on that. Yeah. Anyway, uh, interview with Ed Bolin, who's always uh, uh, forthright and speaks his mind. And uh, uh, take a look at the rest of the world aircraft sales. And uh, I believe I mentioned having a cover story from this month's uh, uh, avionics news, so I won't retread that one. Okay. And in general, people can find you on the Internet where? Avbuyer.com, AEA.net, uh, that aviation safety magazine that Mr. Burnside mentioned. Uh, and for those that get it, uh, NBAA's Business Aviation Insider. But you'll never know it because they don't put our names on those. 
And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. Please check out my latest Kindle ebooks uh, uh, on uh, on, Ama- on e- Amazon.com. Uh, the uh, first one's out there, Around the Field, Volume 1, Stories of the People, Places, and Planes of the Oshkosh Fly-In. Uh, you can learn about all my uh, Kindle books at uh, Amazon.com slash author slash Jack Hodgson. Uh, also doing a, a lot more aviation blogging at uh, the AroundTheField.net website. So uh, check that out if you have a chance. And in general, uh, you can learn more than you ever really wanted to know about me at jackhodgson.com. Big big thanks to uh, Jeff Ward for all his help with the show notes and in the forums. Uh, Please take a few minutes to check out ECHO, the general aviation online media channel uh, that is uh, at uncontrolledairspace.com slash ECHO. All sorts of uh, historic, old, uh, interesting, fun clips from the early days of of, uh, uncontrolled airspace as well as some other aviation podcasts are over there at ECHO. Uh, And don't forget you can uh, check out the rest of the UCAP website. You can chat with us directly and with many of your fellow listeners in the uncontrolled controlled airspace forums uh you can see who's doing what on the new ratings webpage of fame and much much more all of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com david were you going to say something well if you want to look as young and svelte as a jeb burnside you should spend a lot of time flying because as you know time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan bye-bye and that's enough talking let's go flying i'm not even sure how to take that I thought you were going to end by saying, boom. Boom! Boom!